from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. This podcast episode is part of a special series about science and creativity. This time, if and how joking around can have serious health benefits. Or, to paraphrase Reader's Digest, is laughter actually the best medicine? This is part two of a three-part series about the science of laughter. Everybody loves to laugh, but could laughter make us healthier? (laughs) Sorry, this actually never happened to me. Someone who studies laughter, both uncontrolled and otherwise, is the neuroscientist Sophie Scott. She is interested in exactly what happens physiologically when we laugh. It does seem to completely overwhelm your motor system. You you can't do anything else. You find yourself gasping for breath. You can't talk. It is trying to kill you. It's just squeezing air out of you. It is slightly sinister. So how did you, as a neuroscientist, get started in this uh, discipline? Well, I've been working for, I mean, literally decades on um, how we express emotion with the voice. And I'm particularly interested in what are called nonverbal expressions of emotion, things like screams or Ah. yelps of surprise or disgusted sounds. They're very interesting and they're more like animal calls than Uh they are like speech. But one thing I was really struck about was that all the emotions we were looking at were really negative. And I just thought that doesn't really describe my life. So I started looking at some more positive emotions and hidden in there was laughter. That's interesting. So when you started doing this, did did neuroscientists go... Sophie, what are you doing? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I've, had, um, I've had my work defaced by a colleague. I've no idea who it was. They wrote, is this science all over it? Um, it is. It, there's something about laughter that just seems really trite and stupid. I mean, like, it seems literally pointless to people that you would <laughs> yeah. study it. And that's basically meant we have entirely ignored positive emotional experiences. So you could study psychology and neuroscience for your whole life, certainly in the UK, and never know that people fell in love with each other or found (laughs) anything (laughs) funny. And similarly, as I have been thinking about laughter, laughter obviously can be provoked in many different situations and serve many kinds of voluntary and involuntary functions. So in that sense, it seems almost... uh, like uh, like not suited to modern science where something is supposed to be about one thing. You know what I'm saying? Nothing's ever simple with humans. And I think what's interesting, one of the things that's very interesting about laughter is in some ways, pretty much everything we think we know about it, and this includes a lot of scientists, is wrong. So we think we do it a lot less than we do. Uh-huh. Um, we think it's linked with jokes and humour, and it is linked to jokes and humour. But actually, most of the time when you're laughing in a conversation with somebody, you're laughing to show that you know them, right. you like them, you might even love them. You agree with them, you understand them, you're part of the same group as them. You're doing all this kind of affiliative work with laughter. So you might laugh if somebody says, oh, I'm going to miss my bus, because you understand what that means. Uh, but then there's that kind of amazing laughter you see in, in YouTube clips of TV newscasters losing control. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. Are you okay? I just stopped laughing. And I'm going to stop. 
<laughs> well, what causes that? Is it that the, uh, the person is on television where they're really not supposed to laugh and, and, and that makes them laugh more in a kind of self-fulfilling layering process? There are many layers to it, and I think that's one of the reasons why we enjoy it. So very often, I mean, I I don't know how it works in the US, but certainly the BBC really does not like its presenters laughing. (laughs) So I think one of the things we enjoy is the fact that they've got to keep going, (laughs) and and you can hear everything it's doing to their voice, and they can't sort of not make a noise. So every time they try to talk, you hear the laughter affecting them. Because once it's got that toehold in there, it will win. It will win a competition between talking and breathing and laughing. Laughter will win. And also, I guess, they wouldn't be doing it if they didn't like the people that were around them. So there's a very famous clip of two men trying to do a cricket broadcast in the UK and they just keep making each other laugh helplessly. I was thinking this sake, stop it. There's Lawrence who had Lawrence extremely well. And one of the things, one of the things people enjoy about that, I think, is, is that if they didn't like each other, that wouldn't be happening. Right. You know, you're hearing friends. Right. And so, that, as you say, there's layer after layer after layer when you hear somebody or watch somebody desperately trying not to laugh on, on live TV and radio. You, well, you've studied the differences neurologically between uh, that kind of involuntary laughter that we've been talking about and and I guess the, surely the more common voluntary laughter that happens. Yep. So when you look at the brain, what what, what are the different things going on? Do those come from different sets of places in the brain? So in terms of perception, there are huge differences in how your brain deals with spontaneous, authentic laughter versus more posed social you mean laughter. How, how my mean, brain judges your fake exactly, laugh versus your exactly, laugh. Yeah. exactly. What you see when people hear a a laugh that to ins- I, the, the problem with the phrase fake is it makes it sound like it's yes, bad but yes, actually yes, most of the time yes, yes. social laughter is really nice and we like it and right. it's a very important skill to learn what we see in the brain is there's actually more response to social laughter than there is to spontaneous laughter there's lots of activation to spontaneous laughter and it's strongly associated with auditory processing probably because you hear sounds you never hear in any other context <laughs> But when you listen to social laughter, (laughs) you get all these activations in brain areas associated with thinking about what other people think. And they're activated normally in very complex tasks where you ask people to work out problems about what somebody else knows. And here we're seeing them recruited just when you hear somebody laughing. And I think that's because when you hear somebody laughing spontaneously, it's unambiguous. There's no question that person has really lost it. Uh And... You know, you can kind of enjoy that. When you hear somebody going, ah, ha, 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 you know that is a fake laugh at some level. Right. And you are trying to work out why that person is producing that behaviour. There is an intention behind it. You know, maybe they're in pain. Maybe they're trying to cover up being embarrassed. Maybe they're trying to make somebody like them. Maybe they're trying to get out of a problem. You know, all this different stuff, that sort of stuff we do with social laughter. I think this is just a sign that um, we just keep coming back to with laughter, which is that it's never neutral. Right. It's always meaningful, and we're trying to work out what that meaning is. Now, I have another scientific question, Doctor, which is, um, uh, and I don't know if this has been studied, but one of the famous side effects from the time one is a teenager is that you, you, you smoke marijuana, you, you in, in, ingest cannabis, is, un, is laughter, and con, uncontrollable laughter sometimes. It, any speculation or data about the neurological basis for that? I suspect that the main basis for it is actually that a lot of what's going on day to day, minute to minute, 
in your brain is trying to stop you from laughing because there are many situations where it would not be appropriate to get completely hilariously giggly you are actually suppressing it. So it just disinhibits this thing we would be doing all the time if we could. Probably, yes. I love that idea that we're just we're just laughed at, laughing animals and and just <laughs> we're we're just keeping it tamped down all the time. Uh, yeah, I suspect so. Yeah. <laughs> huh. Now, in addition to studying this and being a scientist, you you a few years ago started doing stand up comedy. I did. Yes, I'm hilarious. <laughs> I, I can tell. <laughs> I've been fielding a, a couple of emails from a, a TV producer who's interested in making a TV series about the search for the perfect sex toy. And such is the lure of brain imaging that they want to have brain images of people to determine how pleasurable the sex toys are. Rather than, I don't, just ask them. Anyway, no, but you don't get the glowing pictures. Don't get the glowing pictures. Uh, the, 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 did that come after this began being this focus of your science? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, um, I... My my involvement in this came from UCL, the university where I'm based in London, started something called Bright Club, where they get their academics to do stand-up comedy. And in fact, I'd gone along and advised them about laughter. And I thought, who would do this? I mean, who'd put themselves through that? Right. That's just awful. And then one of my senior male colleagues was going, oh, have you done Bright Club, Sophie? You know, I did it and I was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, you swines. You know, you asked him, you haven't even asked me. Mm-hmm. It was sheer professional jealousy. But it's also given me a whole different perspective on how laughter works. It's actually been incredibly helpful way of just thinking completely differently about laughter. So it's actually been very helpful for my science, I think. And do you think, given your science, that that affected the way you tried to stand up in front of people and get laughs? I don't. Well, not at first, because I realised at first I did all the mistakes everybody makes. You know, so well, the classic mistake that a, a rookie makes for stand-up comedy is they talk over the laughter. So you say something, the audience laughs, and you're so panicked right. you just carry on anyway, yes, yes. and they will stop laughing because they want to hear what you're saying. And do you use like material from your from your science uh, in your <laughs> in your act? Yes, I mean, and no one's under any illusion that I'm a professional comedian. You know, they know I'm a scientist. They know I'm a professor at UCL, and they're very kind. But I found it a very interesting discipline. It's a completely different approach to writing talks, and I found it very helpful in terms of you know my wider scientific communication. So I did a TED talk last year, and there's no way I would have had the, the chutzpah to try and make yeah. it funny. Uh, Sophie Scott, this has been a pleasure. I really, really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. I spoke with Sophie Scott last year. Her TED Talk is called Why We Laugh. The show will resume very, very shortly. But first, I wanted to take this opportunity to remind you to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Studio 360 Show. And now... Back to the podcast. I was a bit of a dark kid. I'd occasionally stage my own death for fun. (laughs) Mother, I've taken a whole bottle of pills. Oh my God, what did you take? Tums. (laughs) Maria, those are your father's. What, Mother? I can't hear you. The calcium is coursing through my veins. If laughter makes us feel better... Why do so many comedians talk so much about how mentally unhealthy they are, such as Maria Bamford? I've, uh, I never really thought of myself as depressed as much as paralyzed by hope. And Mark Marin. I'm just saying a lot of people are on medicine. They don't need to be because let's be honest, folks, it isn't easy for anyone. And, and I think in most cases, the only difference between depression and disappointment is your level of commitment. 
and Conan O'Brien. I used to think I needed to be incredibly unhappy to be funny. Um, and you ha- and people tell you that's not true. I, I, you get to a point where you don't care if it's true or not. You just think, you know what, I'd rather be happy. I didn't go to a shrink until I was 22. And I started doing comedy in New York when I was 20. So laughter and uh, sadness and, and depression, they all mixed together for yeah. me. That's Chris Gethard, who is a stand-up comedian and the host of The Chris Gethard Show. And he has his own podcast called Beautiful Anonymous. And on both of those shows and in his stand-up act, he often talks about his real struggles with depression and other mental health issues. Comedy was really, I think, in many ways, looking back on it, one of the things that was keeping my head above water. Yeah. So you don't want to romanticize it because that stops people from getting help. That being said, there are so many notable examples of depressed comics, but I've thought a lot about this, and I kind of think that the skill set of a comedian in many ways might overlap with someone who is really emotional to a maybe out-of-control degree in the sense that when you think about a good stand-up comic, a good stand-up comic doesn't just have good jokes. They know how to go into a room and say those jokes and sense how the crowd's responding to them and send the crowd in a certain direction for the reaction through like subtle manipulation through the through the way they're telling the joke you know the very very best comedians in the world always say like if they'll switch an individual word and try that out and play with it like it's a science it makes sense to me that people who train their instincts to just completely sense how other people are affected by things are people who in their own right might be prone to be highly affected by things. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. And and w- w- you had to deal with thoughts of suicide and harming yourself and all that. Did that was that happening too while you were like in junior high school and high school or not until later? When I was a freshman in high school, I was being bullied pretty bad by this kid. Uh, named Scott, and our lunch tables were next to each other, and I sat with a bunch of freshman nerds, and he sat with a bunch of sophomores. And they would bully us, and they'd yell things at us, and then they started throwing food at us. And it was just demoralizing, you know, being there as a kid, getting, you know, nailed with food and tell the teachers, and they're not doing anything about it because they don't catch them in the act, and then you got clothes covered in this stuff all day, and everybody's making funny, and it was building. It went on for, like, months. And there was a... That's bullying. It was, it was. And I remember I brought... Uh, razor into school and my plan was I was going to cut my wrists in the bathroom and then uh, in in my very melodramatic 14-year-old brain I was going to write the word Scott on the wall of the stall I was in and I went into the stall and I started I don't know if I was seriously going for it but I started trying to see if I could draw blood but it was very difficult because the razor that I brought was one of those like single safety razors, like no. a single-use disposable. Yeah, that plastic. Like they can barely, you can barely shave. get through a shave yeah. without needing to use like four of those. Yeah. let alone to take yourself out. Um, so you're in college. You're an adult. You're going to a good university. You're, you know, a reasonable. Okay, state university. <laughs> but, but, but a, a pretty, a mid- uh, yeah, a well-known, good um, name brand. But how, I mean, you know, they have like, you know. A, a, a lot of shrinks in university health service. Why, why did it take you until 22 to get uh, help? I remember there were two or three times where people would express concern, whether it was friends or family, and I would tell them, okay, I'm going to go see the shrinks at Rutgers. But I think it is, I just never went. I just never went. And um, I think it's such a taboo conversation, especially back then. Like, you have to keep in mind, this is 1998. 
I'm at a state school. I come from a blue collar neighborhood in North Jersey. Irish Catholics who are just legendary for stuffing their feelings right. down. It was just like nobody followed up. Nobody ever checked to see if I was actually doing it. So once you uh, you become an adult, you become a comedian. Uh, did they feel? Did did your mental? Can I call it a mental illness? Yeah, say I'm, <laughs> I'm fine with that. Uh, did, did did it feel? Uh, connected to, hey, I'm going to become a comedian. The mental health issues I had and and my comedy uh, pursuits were very tied together. I don't know how much I knew it at the time. I was aware that it was the thing that made me happy most consistently. Very aware of that. But I also look back and realize that it was it was dangerous because it would be, I wound up, it was sort of this like adrenaline rush that I was chasing. Con- you get on stage, you get that instant feedback, you say a thing, people laugh. And that means they like you. I met a girl. I thought she was really cool. She was 24 years old. That's how old I was the last time I went on a first date. (laughs) I asked her out. She said yes. I was excited. She was not as excited. I learned this when she did not attend the date. I go back and forth because I realize um, comedy was really saving my life. It was also maybe becoming an addiction to the adrenaline. And the other aspect of it that goes in the negative column is I think it was one of the reasons I resisted actually getting help for so long because I think I was really buying into that myth of you have to be tortured you won't be funny anymore like part of what's interesting about me and part of what gives me so much to say and a desire to say it is that I'm driven by these dark times so I can't get rid of those because that'll affect my comedy and I look back. You always have those. It's actually, I actually shake my head at it so hard because it's one of the things I hear from people the most in my profession about why they don't seek it out. And I go nuts because I actually got funnier. My career didn't really do anything until I was on medication for a few years Mm. because it's like, yeah, for for as interesting as it might be to be a loose cannon, once I was medicated and once I was in therapy, it was like, oh, now I can organize my thoughts. I can do second drafts. I can take meetings and not be just racked by anxiety and nervousness. Like all these skills you need to be able to have to have a career are things that only set in once I actually straighten my head out. And it, it really, it breaks my heart how many people, even today, as, as someone who talks about this, I will oftentimes have younger comedians approach me and so often, they, ah, I don't want to go on pills. I think they'll take away my edge or something. And it's yeah. like, well, good luck with that. I hope it works out. But I think that's a really dangerous myth. And I wish people didn't um, perpetuate it. And and ha- apart from like letting you get organized and write scripts and return calls and all that, uh, has it affected the jokes you think of? That's a really great question. I don't... It's so hard to say because I don't know what jokes I would be writing (laughs) if I hadn't been medicated. But one thing I can say is that um, I was in therapy from 2002 to 2004 and I was medicated. And that was when I look back and really think of my time doing improv at the Upright Citizens Brigade as like it's most fertile. And then I went off the medications until 2007 and uh, things really hit the rails again over those years. And then 2007, when I got medicated again, that was when I started doing stand-up. And I started telling personal stories on stage. She said, when you were little, and the other kids used to pick on you for having such a big head, it always broke my heart. Because I knew that when you were being born, and you started crowning, like when you were emerging, 
the doctor took a step back and shouted the words, my God, his head, it's as big as a bowling ball. And I think that was the first time I was really on a drug cocktail that was really working for me, that was really designed in a way that worked for me. So I think, I don't know if the content of my jokes would be funnier or more interesting if I wasn't medicated, but I think once I got to a place that chemically was correct for me is also when I started being myself on stage and talking about my personal life on stage. And, you know, those are things that are very daunting to do and you feel a little judged. And I think it did help me transition to a place where I had the uh, bravery to do that, to go up there and be myself and try to say things that I actually meant. Yeah. There's an episode of your show, of your TV show, where where you had uh, people call in and you and uh, L.A. Kemper, who's the actress from uh, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, uh, asked them if they were okay. I want to play a clip from that. Bethany, who's next? All right, let's talk to Kyle. Let's ask Kyle, him. baby, are you okay? No, ma'am. <laughs> yeah, all right, Kyle, what's, what's going on? I don't have a college degree. I'm 25. I don't have a job. I'm scared I'm going to die alone, and I'm scared to talk to girls. You have a lot of time to sort things out, figure out what you want from life. That's great advice. And I'll say from my end, you have a great beard. There's a, girls who just love a good beard. You got to find the beard girls. Look at the smile on your face, yeah, Kyle. How bad nice. can things be? Uh, I guess not very bad. Oh, no, they still sound so bad. <laughs> just based on that reaction. I don't think we're going to solve all your problems. <laughs> uh, the idea there being, well... Basically, to provide a platform, what I've come to realize is that I have a platform and I have this material that I do from my own life at times that will go dark and that manages to wind up being all right and wind up being funny. I really remember the feeling of being young and feeling like I wasn't supposed to talk about this and feeling like it was kind of like, well, go, if you're feeling sad, you go deal with it and don't freak everybody out. And I think, you know, for as cheesy as it might be, I think I really sat and thought about like what would what would have been useful to me when I was 14 or 15 and really scared and feeling really broken and feeling like I wasn't allowed to talk about it. I bet if I had a forum that was outright saying, "No, no, no, you not only can you talk about it here, but we won't even really we won't not only will we not judge it, we won't even take it that seriously." Right. Like, well, and I'll just yeah, it's about not it. an educational PSA. No, we're not Son, solving what's wrong? anybody's problems. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, it's not it doesn't have to be this big life moment to just say, hey, I get yeah. sad sometimes. And that to me feels like, well, if I can provide that and still make it something that comedically I'm proud of, it would almost be wrong to not right. try to touch in with the viewers and, and see how they're doing. You're a different version of Mr. Rogers or something. On some level, on some level, as, as sad as that might be, I think there is an apt comparison there. Chris Gethard, thank you very much. Thank you. That was a, a fun talk. Chris Gethard just wrapped up the third season of The Chris Gethard Show. You can catch him live on tour this summer through September 1st. And that's it for part two of our Science and Creativity series on laughter. It was produced with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. On part three of our laughter series coming up, we ask, what makes doctors laugh? There are many forms of amputation you probably don't really want to know. The two most common being single amputees and married amputees. Next time on Studio 360's latest science and creativity series. Somehow I made it through 
Thanks for listening. And you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 